You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about tongue ties. Joining me is Dr. Adva Buzzi, an attending physician in the Division of Otolaryngology, or ENT, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Buzzi. Thanks, Katie. I'm so excited to have you here. I know we've talked about this topic before, so I'm excited to be sharing it with others. But I think before we dive into this hot topic, we should start with a refresher of the anatomy of the tongue. Although this could be challenging without a visual, so I'm giving you a big challenge right up front. (laughs) But when people say tongue tie, they mean a shorter or tight lingual frenulum or the small piece of skin that tethers the tongue to the bottom of the mouth. But how do we define what is too short or what's considered problematic? And is the frenulum itself actually abnormal in these cases? Yeah, that's exactly right, Katie. So the frenulum is actually formed from the fascial lining of the floor of mouth, which connects the, again, without a visual, it is difficult, Mm -hmm. but which connects the mandibular periosteum. So right at the back of your teeth, to the ventral tongue. Mm. That fascia then attaches to the tip of the tongue to varying degrees, and because of that has variable appearances. In addition to that, another factor is that it can have variable thickness. And so that's why there are different anatomic presentations of the actual appearance of the frenulum. Since the frenulum is really a normal part of anatomy, which I think you touched upon, abnormal is kind of actually difficult to define. Mm. For that reason, mostly a pathologic frenulum is really one that limits tongue mobility to a degree in which it becomes problematic, essentially. So that's what we would call ankyloglossia. There's a frenulum there, there is a problem, and so the patient has ankyloglossia, or as is referred to sometimes, a tongue tie. So for that exact same reason, two different children can have a similar appearing frenulum, if you will, but one may be problematic and the other may not. So that's, that's kind of the gist of that, of an abnormal frenulum. And that is limited movement, both of the tongue laterally and then up and down as well? Yeah, is that's that what you're right. expressing? Or? Yeah, that's the idea. Um, it really depends, I think, upon how tethered the tongue is. Where is that frenulum going to in terms of the limitations? But again, I see patients in my clinic that have come for a completely different reason, older children, that have a, what we would consider, I'll put quotes around abnormal, frenulum, it goes to the tip of their tongue, and have never had a problem. Mm -hmm. And so again, sure, there can be some limitations. It's more about whether those limitations are causing problems. And we'll talk a little bit more about what kind of problems those are. Right. So it's more about function than appearance Mm -hmm. of the frenulum. We know from a recent New York Times article that Google searches in the United States related to tongue tie have been steadily increasing. And while this diagnosis might be trendy right now, I'm wondering how common is this condition? That's a really great question that also may be hard to answer, (laughs) as are many questions about tongue tie. 
Um, and kind of because of what we discussed before, because it is technically a normal part of anatomy and really everyone is likely to have one. So the estimates kind of from studies that have been done is that ankyloglossia or tongue tie, um, again, just defined as limited tongue mobility caused by a restrictive frenulum, is present in about maybe 4 to 11% of newborns. Mm. So the other thing you write about is the diagnosis has definitely increased significantly over the last several decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a study that looked at the KID database, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, uh, which is just an inpatient diagnosis kind of database, which showed that from 1997 to 2012, the diagnosis increased tenfold, wow. which is crazy when you think about it. Right. And they found that that's actually similar. A tenfold increase was also the number of phrenotomies that they saw performed increased mm. by that much. So, I mean, the question I would pose is, does that mean that the incidence is increasing right um i think i think that's unlikely i think that's doubtful but most likely as kind of the new york times article kind of highlighted as well is it's more likely that it's due just to an increasing desire to make breastfeeding successful mm -hmm. and with this being one of the factors that could affect a latch and make that more difficult for the infant mother dyad. It has a fairly straightforward appearing solution. I think a lot of patients kind of seek evaluation of the tongue as a possible limiting factor there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I doubt that we're evolving to develop tighter lingual frenulums. Exactly. <laughs> uh, In fact, you would think it was the opposite, right? If it was right. if it was something that's not good, right? You would think it would be the opposite. Yeah. Yep. But people, as you mentioned, worry that tongue tie may cause feeding issues in breastfeeding infants. That's a common one. But I've mm -hmm. also heard other things that people worry about, such as impaired speech or snoring. Is there any evidence for those? Yeah, great question. I, I'll go back and kind of touch upon the, the evidence just in general for a phrenotomy, which is the procedure that takes care of, of a tongue tie and tongue ties in general. So I think a major issue is that the quality and the quantity of high-level evidence relating to tongue ties and the procedure that takes care of them is really lacking. And I think that's especially true when it comes to infant feeding issues. Um, the major reason for that is likely because it's difficult to tease out whether if the procedure had not been performed, there would actually have been a natural improvement over time in feeding. Mm -hmm. In fact, very interestingly, there have been a couple of recent studies that actually showed that when a patient comes in to be evaluated or an infant comes in to be evaluated for breastfeeding issues, if a multidisciplinary evaluation, so meaning lactation nurse, pediatrician, perhaps a feeding specialist is undertaken, or if there's improved lactation support for a patient, that actually leads to a significant decrease in the number of phrenotomies performed, which mm. is super interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. In support of phrenotomy for, for infants, the thing we have most evidence for, interestingly, is improvement in maternal nipple pain after a phrenotomy. Mm -hmm. And lots of other studies have attempted to kind of answer the question of whether feeding efficiency is improved after phrenotomy. And again, because blinding is pretty difficult to do for this procedure, if you can imagine, mm -hmm. none of the studies have had good control groups. And in fact, when they do have a control group, a lot of the subjects end up crossing over into the treatment group when given the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really allow for good long-term evaluation, right. which is interesting. So again, Definitely evidence for improved nipple pain in the in the mother, and maybe some evidence to show improvement in the maternal reported breastfeeding efficacy, mm -hmm. um, but not necessarily as much like objective uh, outcomes. Mm. And then I'll go back to your original question in terms of uh, indication 
of phrenotomy for other reasons. There's a systematic review that was in pediatrics in 2015 that kind of had it right when it said basically that there's a glaring deficiency in the data mm. for other indications. We had a consensus statement come out for the American Academy of Otolaryngology looking at ankyloglossia, and they stated similar concerns. So studies pertaining to speech outcomes, which is one of the biggest concerns I hear from my patients, even when they're coming in to get an infant examined, you mm -hmm. know, my baby has a tongue tie, are they going to have problems with speech? Right, future speech. Exactly. So those studies have really, and it's hard to do a procedure because we're concerned about the future, right? Right, right. Yeah, those studies have really, again, suffered from like a lack of control group, no randomization. They've all been very small sample sizes. And the assessment of an improvement in articulation, if we will, a lot of those assessments haven't really been validated. Mm. I recently read a study out of Asia that kind of attempted a randomized trail to determine the efficacy for articulation. They basically took a group of patients in different age groups. They had a control, so some of them underwent phrenotomy, the others did not. And they just compared articulation and they had a lot of different validated articulation measures that they looked at afterwards. Interestingly, they split it into two to three-year-olds, three to four-year-olds, and four to five-year-olds. Mm -hmm. The two to three-year-old groups did not have improvement compared to the control groups. And the older groups, there was some improvement, but also interesting that one of those groups didn't actually have an improvement in measured tongue mobility. So their tongue mm -hmm. was just as mobile as the group who didn't mm -hmm. undergo the procedure. And so the overall consensus is that it's unlikely that a tethered frenulum causes speech problems, right. is what I would say. And oftentimes when I see these patients when they're older and the parents are coming due to a concern that the tongue tie could be affecting speech, we discuss that if anything, there could be some articulation issues. And most of the time I have them really go through a consultation with a speech pathologist to determine whether we really think that the tongue movement limitations are really affecting articulation before we decide on a phrenotomy. That's really helpful and interesting information about the breastfeeding and speech. What about snoring? That's a great question. And I think more recently, there's been an increased interest in tongue tie and its effects on sleep disorder, breathing, or snoring. So I think the presumption here is that a tethered frenulum would cause decreased elevation of the tongue, which leads to a narrower upper airway because of abnormal maxillary growth. So if your tongue is not sitting at the top of your mouth where it should be, that maxilla isn't going to stretch out and you're mm -hmm. just going to have a narrower airway is what, what I think the presumption is there. So several studies have shown a higher prevalence of, of ankyloglossia in children with sleep apnea. One small study showed improvement in sleep apnea after phrenotomy, but again, very small study. And so while these rec more recent studies have shown maybe a small possible connection, I really think that the research, research is definitely necessary. I just don't think that the evidence is there quite yet. Okay, great. Thank you for reviewing all of that evidence with us because I know there are a lot of myths yeah, out there. Absolutely. And as we continue to myth bust, we've been talking <laughs> about what many people would call an anterior tie where that frenulum is going to the tip of the tongue. Right. But I've also heard people talking about a posterior tie or even a lip tie. And so do these things often co-occur? Do they even exist? <laughs> and do they cause issues? Like are there some types of ties that are more likely to cause problems than others. 
Another great controversial question. <laughs> um, you know, unfortunately, when it comes to kind of defining the anatomy of the frenulum, which is kind of what we're trying to do here with agreed upon terms, uh, there is just not a consensus. Most likely an anterior tie is really referring to one that extends to or really close to the tip of the tongue. Mm -hmm. uh, the term posterior tie, which I know is really a buzz term, is a lot more controversial. And really the consensus is just not there as to its definition. Mm -hmm. So some people consider it a frenulum that perhaps inserts into the posterior part of the tongue or behind, you could call the submandibular duct openings kind of the middle portion. So behind those submandibular duct openings and others consider it maybe a band that you can only palpate but may not be as well visualized when you look into a patient's mouth. But some people just wanna completely eliminate the term. And anyone who has an anterior tie inherently really has a posterior tie for that right. reason. I think the main takeaway there is that the frenulum can just look many different ways. Mm -hmm. And the appearance in itself doesn't necessarily correlate with the severity of the problem. Like we talked about before, they could have the same exact frenulum and one person has problems and the other doesn't. And so for that reason too, kind of these grading systems we have to look at for the grading of the frenulum are kind of difficult to utilize from that standpoint as well. Oh, and then the lip ties, that's another area of controversy. <laughs> uh, the evidence for releasing a maxillary labial frenulum, if you will, which is that lip tie, for the improvement of breastfeeding is extremely poor. So some practitioners don't even really believe that there is such an entity that is abnormal. And I personally do not recommend labial phrenotomies. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. And I always tell patients they're often worried that it's going to cause dental issues, but that tissue grows and stretches as the patient is growing. And mm -hmm. so my understanding is that dental reasons alone are not an indication to cut that frenulum. You are absolutely right. Yep. They do talk about that gap between the two front teeth, right. but again, unlikely to cause issues in the future. Right. Okay, great. Yeah. Now, when a tongue tie is problematic and there's a functional issue there, the procedure is a phrenotomy or sometimes called a frenulotomy. Can you describe how this procedure is done just for those who might never have seen it or know what you actually do? What's happening? Sure. So in infants, a phrenotomy, so usually around three months is our cutoff. Mm -hmm. A phrenotomy is usually performed in the office. In older children, the procedure is often done under a general anesthetic. Mm -hmm. uh, the two main ways to perform it, and I'm sure you've heard about this too, is either with a laser or through what is referred to as a cold knife phrenotomy. The main idea with both of those procedures is that there's a lysis or a cutting of the fascial band beneath the tongue along a line kind of parallel to the ventral tongue. The laser procedure requires some more safety precautions, including eye protection. The cold knife procedure utilizes either scissors or a knife, but the resulting appearance is similar and ends up looking almost like a rhomboid-like opening in the mucosa at the tongue base. Mm -hmm. When we are done with that procedure in the operating room, we also sometimes put just absorbable sutures to bring the two sides of the mucosa together in the midline. It is also important to note that no study has shown that one technique, the laser or the cold knife, is, is superior to the other. That's really good to hear because 
laser sounds futuristic and cold knife sounds a little yeah. bit <laughs> old fashioned. So um, I think for, you know, especially for families, like it sounds like a laser would have a better outcome, just sounds easier, but you're telling us that outcomes are the same. They are, according to the data we have, they are the same. Great. Now, this procedure sounds simple enough, but we know there's risks to any procedure. So any risks that families should be aware of about doing this? Yeah, that's extremely true. It's always important to remember that any procedure really has risks. So immediately after phrenotomy, I do perform cold knife, the old school phrenotomy. <laughs> so there's always some bleeding. And most likely with a laser phrenotomy, you're not going to see that. The majority of the time, though, that bleeding really stops on its own in the office. Anytime any kind of incision is made, so laser or cold knife, there's always a small risk of an infection. Luckily, the head and neck has extensive vasculature, so that makes this extremely rare. But there have been some reports of some significant infections and swelling in the literature. The submandibular ducts, we kind of touched upon that earlier, are mm -hmm. somewhat at risk during the procedure because they're located just lateral to the midline in the floor of the mouth. And so you're often cutting very close to those. Although a practitioner who's performing that procedure often should really be well aware of the location of those. And so injury to those is pretty rare. Uh, the bigger thing that I always counsel families about is that there can be some readhesion of the frenulum after the procedure. That's not uncommon. The majority of the time, though, at least in my patient population, I feel that it's mostly inconsequential in kind of the final outcome or the, what we're looking for after the procedure. So those patients still have a successful procedure and a good outcome. And we see these newborns in particular who may be getting this procedure pretty frequently in, in the primary care setting. So mm -hmm. how soon after the procedure do you expect to see improvement in things like feeding or pain for the mother? You know what's interesting is we let the infants feed right after the phrenotomy that's done in the office. And most of the mothers tell me that they feel immediate relief from the nipple pain wow. when breastfeeding. So they feel an immediate change. And so I think that that's something that happens pretty quickly. Now, in terms of feeding efficiency or improvement in the latch, I think that's a little bit more variable mm -hmm. and likely depends on a lot of factors. Also, because I think the actual procedure depends on a lot of factors, too. But it would make sense to me that an infant who's maybe a little bit older and we're doing the phrenotomy a little bit later may require a little extra time to adjust to that altered tongue anatomy than one who is on the younger side. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, actually, for my patients, I often recommend continued lactation support after a phrenotomy. Now, I remember learning at a national conference once that there are a variety of healthcare providers who do phrenotomies and that ownership of this procedure varies sometimes regionally and even between institutions. We have a lot of listeners who are trainees, so I'm wondering if you have any advice to give someone who wanted to learn how to do this procedure for their patients. That's a great question, and you're absolutely right. We see dentists performing these. We see advanced practice practitioners performing these, otolaryngologists. I think some OBGYNs perform these, mm -hmm. definitely pediatricians. I think the most important thing is anytime you're considering doing a procedure, which could technically affect someone negatively, I think it's important to be very knowledgeable on the precise indications for the procedure, as in which patients exactly are going to benefit from the procedure so that you're recommending it in the correct situations and the risks of that procedure. As we've seen 
from our discussion today, Katie, and from the recent New York Times article, the procedure, while it is benign appearing, can cause harm. And I think that's sometimes the case when an infant may have been recommended the procedure when the indications have not been fully realized. And of course, any time before undertaking uh, any such procedure on your own, it's also really important to get adequate training. So you really want to be following an experienced practitioner who can lead you through the procedure so that you're, you learn how to perform it the correct way. Well, I always learn a lot about tongue tie from you, and you have tackled a lot of controversial uh, <laughs> topics within this today. So I'm wondering what your top takeaways are on this topic for primary care pediatricians. Great. I think the top takeaway here, as we talked about before, is that the frenulum can just have different appearances in different patients. And that doesn't necessarily correlate with function. So it's always important to really delve into what the problem is and really feel confident that a phrenotomy is the right option for that patient. The evidence we, we talked about in support of phrenotomy is still lacking and definitely larger trials are necessary before making conclusions. Phrenotomy doesn't always alleviate breastfeeding difficulties, but it should definitely be considered when tongue limitation may be contributing to issues. And a phrenotomy in older children is definitely an option with some speech articulation issues as long as there are good indications. And something we didn't talk about as much as other mechanical issues. So kids can have difficulty sticking out their tongue, which may cause social embarrassment. They may have difficulty clearing their back teeth because they aren't able to get their tongue to their molars. And other small situations like maybe licking ice cream. <laughs> but again, the evidence is pretty limited for its success. So just really being firm about the indications and really understanding when a child may benefit from the procedure. That's great. So many great learning points in this. And we really appreciate when we have patients who we're unsure whether or not they need this procedure that we can refer them to CHOP ENT and trust that you all are making very evidence-based decisions about when a patient does or does not need this procedure and taking such great care of them. So thank you to you and the rest of your colleagues in otolaryngology. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.